0: Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show on the road here in Somerville, Massachusetts with a profound human being, beautiful cat, incredible producer and musician. Al Cooper, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Pleasure. Proud to be here. You brought up John Simon. John Simon... um, I did a really amazing interview with him and he talked about... I'm curious, when you joined Columbia, uh, how he helped you become a better producer?
1: Well, he mostly helped me uh, when he produced the Blood, Sweat & Tears album. For years, I made um, demos as a songwriter. So, and they were, you know... You could put volumes of albums out of of those demos saying what they were, but I won't.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, but this album had horns, and for a rock album, that was completely unique. So did
1: the demos. So did the, the demos that I did.
0: Right. Um,
1: if I knew how to write for strings, they would have had strings. So I just watched them. <laughs> produced the Blood, Sweat, and Tears album and went, oh, oh, okay.
0: You sat back and watched him in terms of how he... Well, he,
1: yeah, what else was I going to do? This whole process was... Uh, I'd never seen anything like that before. And I'd been produced by people, but not like that. So <clears throat> I went, oh, okay. I was kind of unlucky. I think... We would cut the rhythm section first, okay. right, until right. we got the track right, and then we would uh, overdub the horns. We were already playing gigs, so you know. But he also came in and, and uh, made the charts better, the arrangements, and uh, and that was a big help. <coughs> and then. Uh, there was a song I wanted to do with just strings, and he didn't say no. You can't do that. He knew how
0: to arrange for strings.
1: He wrote the string parts. Wow! And they were phenomenal. They were so far over my head that I went, "Wow, my lucky!"
0: <laughs> is it is it true that you did want to add horns to the Blues Project? Yes and they said no right and what was the because when i when i talked jimmy heath from the heath brothers you know i mean those r&b bands james brown and the flames going back to the early 60s mid 60s those were all big horn bands yes But, but yes but but in the small ensembles in burgeoning blues rock music there had never been horns so the blues project danny was ambivalent to this stuff Danny Cobb Yeah or whatever the truth is you wanted to put horns in that band but was yes. it had that not been done before what was the why did they push back on that to me that would have been a amazing, amazing sonic expansion of that group
1: I think maybe they thought they couldn't afford it I just started to put a new band together and I and I, I didn't have very much experience uh, other than sax players in bands so I had to audition horn players till I found the four that I thought could do the job. That took a long time. I had the rhythm section, but I didn't have the horns.
0: Is it and what? Is it fair to say that that horn section, trumpet? So what were it was two saxophones, trumpet, and two trumpets. Two trumpets.
1: Saxon trombone,
0: and would you say that that was kind of unheard of in in the rock world? I didn't think like that. I know you didn't, but looking back, that is an iconic album and one of those things where it's like, regardless of the fallout from it, it remains a very sophisticated album. And it, according to the lore, somewhat of a forerunner. And I'm just—is it, was it because of the, that horn?
1: Those I don't horns? think anyone had done that except for. Chicago.
0: Right. Although, I don't know... Ch- Chicago Transit Authority, I don't know if their first album was birthed until s- after the Blood, Sweat, and Tears Out. Was no, it before? I think so. Okay. You know, I, this is something I wanted to ask you about. You talked about being roommates in Nashville with Robbie Robertson. Yeah. I when know. did you first... did When did you first... Meet the
1: band. Good question. I can't remember off the top of my head.
0: Let me ask you: Was it possibly when, um, just listening to that interview with Harvey Brooks today, <clears throat> Bobby Gregg didn't want to leave his family in Philly. Bloomfield wanted to stay with Butterfield. This is for the Forest Hill gig. So who did who did who did Dylan get? He got Levon on drums. And Robbie on guitar. Is it possible that was the first time you met them?
1: I don't think it was Forest Hills. I think it was Newport.
0: Were they the Hawks at that time, or the or they were already the band?
1: No, they were the Hawks. Wow. We got along very well. We laughed a lot.
0: You had a good, you had a good simpatico together. Yes. <clears throat> what that, we- that didn't hurt. Absolutely, and you knew Bob, some of Bob's tunes. Would you say like you kind of worked? Um, can you just talk about you, how you and him worked in the studios with those musicians? Because Bob wasn't really communicating verbally with them about it. You were able. I know you facilitated that. What was well, Robbie's role? T-
1: well, he would teach me the songs, and I would teach him to the band. When he was writing the songs, uh, I would sit there with him, and and he would teach me the songs. And then I would play them over and over, and he would sit and write the words. So, so I, I knew the songs quite well by the time we started doing the album. So was, I, I became the band leader because you, I knew all the songs. You were playing piano. I was playing keyboards.
0: Keyboards, and he would actually write the lyrics while you were, while you were playing the, the melodies. Yes. So what was, what would you say Robbie's role was down there?
1: At what point?
0: In, in Nashville. I mean, if you were the if you were the, the the band lead the you know what what was his role in Nashville?
1: He was uh the guitar player. One of them.
0: Well, there were quite a few pretty nasty guitar players down there. Oh,
1: he was a pretty nasty. He was nasty, player. but
0: I mean, he, so him and Bob were very close. Bob and him had really
1: yeah, they had a uh, bit on the road together, so like I said, we roomed together. So mostly we just laughed a lot because we were t- we were uh, our personalities were good together.
0: I've interviewed George Clinton, you know, uh, P Funk, uh, mm-hmm. Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah, he was in the Brill Building for a-
1: oh, well, not that I knew of, but there was an incredible amount of people. I'm saying Bill it building. was, and I my. So well. First I'm, of all, yeah, go ahead. Um, I wasn't in the Brill building. So I was writing for a publisher who was at 1650 Broadway, 51st and Broadway. And, and I had grown up there in the royal teens. They were in 1650 Broadway, so I was completely comfortable. I'd been there since I was 14. And the publisher signed us as writers so we didn't write for anybody else. And we wrote for him. And we wrote these songs. And he took these songs, the publisher, and his job was to find people to record them. That's what publishers did. So we wrote the songs and he got them placed. And it wasn't just us. It was the whole generation of people who were doing what we were doing at that time. For instance, Jerry Goffin and Carole King, they worked for a publisher called Alden Music. But, the, but uh, Alden Music, uh, Al Nevins and Don Kirshner, hence Al Don, but it was called Alden. For, and And they signed... The best writers there were. And everybody was up there writing songs every day. And if, we were in another place like that. Right. And there were other people writing at the place we were at. And we came in and we wrote songs every day.
0: So this is fascinating. <clears throat> there was no artist attached to the songs you were writing. The publisher would go out and find artists that were interested in possibly exactly sing- Dig. Okay, so let's just go through it. Let's just take Pitney. How, where was Pitney based in the country? Was he in the Midwest or in the, in the South?
1: Uh, New York.
0: He was in New York? Yes. Wow.
1: He came from Connecticut.
0: I just wonder what it was like, if you remember the first time, as 14 or 15-year-old, of hearing a song that you were collaborated on writing, when you heard it on the radio, what that feeling was like.
1: It was great. It was... Probably this time in ring. I think I still lived with my parents.
0: That is incredible. And you started receiving writer's royalties at, at 14 or 15?
1: No, I started earning writer's royalties at 14 or 15.
0: Okay. And then they would accrue and once you became an adult, you got them? How, how did that work?
1: Well, when I, when I started working for a publisher, I got paid every week. And the two other writers that I wrote with did too. Right. So they had to deduct that first, and then pass.
0: Did you ever get to see? Oh, he was long gone by then. Bird was, Bird was long gone. Yeah. But Birdland remained.
1: Sean Parker was before my time, so um, I, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't influenced by or listened to much of him. Hank Crawford, on the other hand, was my hero on alto saxophone.
0: Because he was with the Ray Charles groups you got hip to him or even just no, his soul? He had,
1: he had his own albums.
0: On Atlantic, yeah, he was yeah. he was pretty hip. You really got off on Hank, I, I love that.
1: Oh yeah. He, he, pl- he played alto the way I, I, I love to hear alto play. And when I, when I put horns bands together, I, I couldn't come up with anybody that played like that till Bloodshot um, uh, and Tears. Shreddy Lipsius. He could play like that.
0: Lipsius could play like that. And he did. Do you remember how, because you said that the recruitment of those horns took a minute. He went through quite a few people. Right. He did. Do you know how you got hip to Lipsius originally?
1: I heard him play.
0: Live or just, or you brought, just, he cut? Uh, I think I auditioned him.
1: Wow. Also, uh, we got along very well. And so he was the first horn player I got. And then he brought in the other horn players. He knew the other horn players. So he brought in a succession of horn players till I liked them. I had no real experience with uh, horn players till then. I'd worked with horn players, but uh, guys that were uh, big guys in the studio, and they weren't going to play with any kid band. I mean, Hank
0: was Hank was really his old, He was a,
1: a band leader. Hank was playing with Rachel Alves.
0: Absolutely, I'm trying to like. I'm trying to think. I of hired them. him for a session once. Picking
1: the horn players for Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, I don't think we ever had a, an older horn player. I think the most experienced one was Randy Brapper.
0: Yeah, and even at that time, that was pre, for Randy, I mean, he had he had done a lot of stuff. I mean, he had been in, at Indiana. He,
1: well, I mean, he did studio work. That's mostly where I got these guys from, but I wanted young guys. I didn't want old guys, so I got young guys.
0: Did you ever, um, I think we maybe I asked you this, but um, were you familiar with um, just not even the, uh, something called the Chitlin Circuit? Upstate? No,
1: well, that, that, that was called that because
0: it was Southern. Yeah, but there was one that ran through upstate New York because, I mean, Gads... Well, that wasn't the Chitlin Circuit then. Right, but what, what would that, what is that, did you ever, like because those places were pretty magical and a lot of the Cats...
1: Yeah, but it wasn't New York. That's where I was. Right.
0: You never. So but I, even I... in touring with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, you, you did you go down south with them? Not that you played on the Chitlin' Circuit, but would you tour the south with Blood, Sweat, and Tears? I don't remember.
1: I think we played a 10-city tour when the album came out. And then... Uh, I left the bag. <laughs> just giving you the look. I know You can't get me because of the garbage can. <laughs>
0: you know, I wanted to ask you about a time in your life that you faced a lot of adversity, how you overcame it, and how it made you stronger. What time was that? You just pick pick out one time. Huh? I, one time when you were really f- facing a lot of adversity in your life, and how you overcame it, and how it made you a stronger I, person. I don't
1: think of a time when I faced adversity.
0: Four marriages. Oh, you mean that? No, I, I mean, like, you meant in the music business. Well, I mean, so it's fair to say that everything was. I mean, I've heard just. I mean, you got to be a little bit crazy to be a, a musician, or in your case, you, you never had any any adversity within the music. <laughs>
1: She's smart or what? Yeah. Bet didn't even come to me. <laughs> she was just trapped. There was nobody in here.
0: Uh,
1: ask me again.
0: Um, in, in a mu- from a musical point of view, in any capacity, was there a time when you were really up against it, you were facing adversity... Ultimately, how you overcame it, or how you sort of figured your way out of it, and made you more—it made you just a stronger person constitutionally.
1: Well, I, I, this is my fourth marriage, so I went through, you know, the bust-ups of three marriages, and it was just, you know, I had to deal with it, and I had. Uh, work to do as well
0: right well I mean I've just known cats that have either had to leave I mean uh, this great drummer had to leave Bill Evans's band because his wife at the time was just furious that he was always on the road it's hard to keep a family together period oh you know?
1: well I, I only had that problem in my
0: first marriage because you had your a son your son yeah
1: but in fact our marriage broke up before my son was born really yeah. I think she was 3 months pregnant. love is know. and That is my only child. child.
0: <laughs> right. And we're going to you got to you got to give him a call and talk to him, we'll, you know, just hear his voice, you know, it's important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Life is precarious and fleeting.
1: No, I know
0: though. Yeah, I know. I know. Um it's fascinating there the what are in your mind what are the best you can be very you very humble person but it's like what are the qualities of leadership in the studio or on the bandstand that are most important in your mind i see a lot of there's a lot of people it's you have
1: to know what you're doing that's the most important thing if you're in charge and you don't know what you're doing then you're in a bad situation so I try to avoid that.
0: I guess what I'm saying is, what does it mean to know what you're doing? I mean, I mean, it's the idea of saying, don't micromanage. Uh, let people come in and why? You, why did you hire them to be themselves? I'm just saying, there's little subtle techniques. Well, you
1: know, yeah. well, I'm saying you know what you're doing. You learn from experience, and every experience you learn a yes or a no.
0: You point to a specific example that you can, like, sort of personalize?
1: Well, simply, if you hire a musician and he has uh, troubles outside the band, that's a no-no. And as soon as you find that out,
0: see you later. Right, right, right. Late to the gigs, pro- But I didn't like...
1: I didn't enjoy being the leader in that respect.
0: Too much babysitting.
1: Well, too much responsibility. So I did that once. And then I quit being in bands. You quit? I I would lead bands... But it would be under my name. It would be Al Cooper.
0: Al Cooper, right. You'd
1: come in to see Al Cooper. And I had people in my band. And I'd introduce them, and I'd pay them, and I'd teach them, and that was it.
0: And they had to stay within the guidelines of not... If they had stuff outside that was detrimental, then you'd be, they'd be replaced.
1: Well, it had to be their priority.
0: That's right. That's a good point, yeah.
1: If it wasn't, then I'd get somebody else.
0: What about somebody, did you ever come across someone who was just a savant, and it was an integral part to a band, and yet they were strung out or late, and it was really You know, you you see this on sports teams sometimes where the guy is so talented, and he's such a... sports teams,
1: horn players. Yeah.
0: Was there somebody that was painful for you to have to let go because you, they were really an asset to the band, but they were a total mess?
1: I wouldn't name them.
0: But that, that, that did come into the lexicon. That did happen. I'm sure it did. <laughs> One thing I was hoping to listen to at some point uh, is the, this, this, this session that is really this Frankie and Johnny session that you have on tape. That was a band. Now those guys, you must have been pretty tight with those guys. Were they were
1: you... my, they were my band.
0: I'm not. Their names do not jump off the page to me.
1: Well, they were famous.
0: Absolutely, but I mean, when you say they were your band, how
1: they, they they were musicians I hired to back me up. In New York. I lived in New York. Right, but ultimately so we toured everywhere.
0: Can you talk about who were those cats? Because I find that to be.
1: I also produced an album
0: of them called Frankie and Johnny. Well, with that Whitman candy.
1: Well, I called them Frankie and Johnny. The album was called The Sweetheart Sample.
0: I I know. And that cover was, they threatened to sue you with the cover because it was too identical to the candy?
1: Not me, the record company. So (laughs) the record company never put the record out.
0: There are a few copies floating around.
1: Oh, I have it. I don't know if anybody else does. But it's, it was a great album. Really good.
0: Do you stay in touch with any of those cats today?
1: No. Not those particular two guys. Interesting. I would if they called me.
0: Absolutely.
1: I've i am not enemies with them. I just don't, you know.
0: Well, we move life down. goes on, yeah.
1: Yeah, we moved on. How did you, looking back
0: on it, the, um, but there's an unreleased album that we did that's quite good. I just want to hear it. I mean, that to me is like.
1: Uh, well, then shut that thing off and I'll play it. Oh, we will.
0: No, absolutely. A couple more minutes. Um, uh, that was on Sounds of the South.
1: No, it was on Warner Brothers.
0: It was on Warner's. Would you, do you think you would uh, pursue music today? Th- I do pursue music today. I mean, if you were starting out at, at 14 or 15 today.
1: I have no idea. It's I'm, per- not, I'm not 14 or 15 now.
0: I just wonder what it was like to be a, a road dog back then, because my friends that I'm up here seeing are brilliant musicians, and they're playing original music, and they're starving to death.
1: Well, it's the same as it ever was.
0: same as it ever was. But the cost of living wasn't as crazy back then.
1: I don't know about that. I mean, comparatively, you got paid so much back then. I mean, so little back then.
0: That's true. But you could all. I mean, that money also. You could go and still. I mean, talking to Brecker, he had a loft for 160 bucks on the Lower West Side. He could make that in one week in the studio. You know, and then you could go out and.
1: Yeah, most guys don't play in the studio. And especially today.
0: Well, there is no studio scene. I mean, what to So
1: I'm saying, there you go. So you can't compare the two.
0: Did you know Steve Tyrell back then? He worked with Dion with that. No, com- I know who he is. Yeah, I'm just
1: trying to picture his Warwick
0: face. Burt Backrack. The 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 Howard all the thing we were talking about earlier. The- he
1: didn't work with Burt Backrack. How did you work with burt backrack
0: well he was a he was he was just what you were he was a, a he was a writer he was working in one of those not necessarily yeah but if, did he write a song
1: with Burt backrack?
0: I think he worked extensively with Dionne Warwick and Burt backrack yeah
1: well you can't say that what has worked extensively with
0: I'd have to the, go back and look at my notes it's just from that time period the label that you talked about howard the two cats that were uh that formed the record label, their names.
1: Uh, uh, you mean Nevinson Kershner?
0: That's who he worked for. Uh-huh. Um, that was
1: a publishing company.
0: Right, a publishing company, exactly. Um,
1: so if he worked for them, he would have had to have written songs.
0: Exactly. Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'll have to go back and look at that. But I wasn't, you know, so... Um, did you ever use Bernard Purdy on it? All the time. On, uh, like, what? uh, Demos
1: of uh, the songs that I wrote when I was a songwriter. Okay, so. I would hire him all the time.
0: The songs you were writing with Brass and Levine? Yes. Okay. So you wrote those songs, and then you. But to further this, you also brought in the musicians to play the song. Just for demos, so we could play them for other people. I got it. Everett Barksdale, Purdy, who, who were your... Those
1: were the people that were in the studio at the time. They were studio musicians. They played on records, they played on demos, they were studio musicians. They were the guys that you would call to play on things.
0: And then that de- that those demos would go... But it ultimately the song that became a hit, would that, would that be the rhythm section on the track itself?
1: One thing had nothing to do with the other. One was a demo and the other was someone heard the demo, a producer, and said, I want to do this song. And then they would go and take their band, whoever they used, and cut it with whoever they produced. One thing had nothing to absolutely, do with it.
0: Absolutely, but it, yeah, I mean, just, I'm wondering about how much, especially when you were at Columbia, if That's you... That's
1: another story. I was a producer then.
0: Absolutely. You no, I, I,
1: were talking to me as a writer... Just then, right.
0: So with Purdy, so so the demos you would actually personally with your with your with the trifecta, you could choose the cats you wanted to make the demo.
1: Within the realm of people who would take that money,
0: it would just be like a studio date pay kind of thing. Yeah, it was Purdy, and who, who were your kind of your go to cats? Chuck Rainey, maybe. Yes.
1: New York, any of the New York guys.
0: Yeah, but I mean, we're talking like early. I mean, you know, like for instance, did you did you work with did you hire Paul Griffin on demos before you met him at the Highway sixty one session?
1: No, I never I never really heard him much till I played with him on the, the Dylan sessions. And what matter of we- fact, uh, on uh, sooner or later, one of us must know. He played so good that I could barely play. And we were sitting, like he was, I was sitting here and he was sitting there. So he was playing, you know, there (laughs) and I was playing here. And he was playing that stuff and I was going, "I I can't watch this or I won't be able to play. I can't even listen to it or I won't be able to play. That was what was going on in my head. It was ridiculous what he was playing. How would... Even on uh, like a Rolling Stone, the piano playing is magnificent. Yeah. And I'm going...
0: It's callers, (laughs) baby.
1: No, I'm saying. Yeah. Piano playing is magnificent. So he was always one of my heroes,
0: especially after those days. Absolutely. Did you ever cross paths with Alan Toussaint?
1: Yeah, but I can't remember why or how.
0: He had C-Saint Studios down. I, I know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, you, you know, you've been all all over the country, you know, um, or at least in the, you know, going Nashville, Atlanta, Studio One, uh, all the Columbia stuff. Did you have a? I mean, early on. When when Clive Davis brought you in, did you was there a learning curve at the, at that point or oh did, sure like in, that's what I'm talking about with the adversity like did you did you how did you work through that to get to a point when you you know all of a sudden you know Rubinson's like yo well that was that's you playing but what I'm saying what was the biggest learning curve when you got to Columbia even though you've had previous experience writing tunes
1: it was very similar to
0: sex right the more you do it the better you get yes. Just the perfect way to end this interview, dude. <laughs> Looking forward to listening to Frankie and Johnny, and uh, many more hangs with you, Brother Cooper. I, I have so much more work. How are you going to hear Frankie and Johnny? Are we going to stream it? Huh? Can we listen on the computer? Yeah. yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop the interview now. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, sir.
1: What am I doing?
0: This is the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll see you later.
1: Bye-bye.